You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach, and it's November. Holy cow, how did that happen? Well, you know, soon the leaves will change color and make their way down the streets and clogging your gutters, and everything suddenly will be pumpkin spice if it isn't already, and you'll see orange everywhere. But don't worry, if orange doesn't look good on you, don't fret. Red and green are coming soon. There'll be something for everyone. But I do want to get to my list of five things in order to let my guest, author Jamie Attenberg, have her time here. She is a very disciplined and prolific novelist, as you'll hear. Her newest book is All This Could Be Yours, and seriously, it could be your next great read. Here are my five things that make my life better this week. Numero uno. Pajamas like clothing and clothing like pajamas. Is it really such a stretch after athleisure has become what we wear all the time? I know people who wear leggings and sneakers to every level of thing they do, dinner, drop off at school, meetings, and so on. And now there's all this stuff all these clothes that designers are showing us that look like silk pajamas with piping and lapels. A friend of mine gave me a pair of green silk pajamas. You'll see my picture wearing them on the website at lisabernbach.com. And you know what? It was extremely comfortable. I was just a little self-conscious. But why not? Pajamas to wear outside. The only thing is, someone needs to tell me what shoes are appropriate to go with silk pajamas. Number two, forever stamps. Unlike most people I know, I still do frequent the post office, and I'm mailing packages to my exhibits, and I mail checks. Do you know what those are, kids? You can Google them to pay my credit card bills. And I sort of enjoy the stamps. They're like stickers, you know, they're sticker fun. And by the way, in the dark ages of the 20th century, we had to lick them and they did not taste good. So I really like the way we do it now. Plus, they're all called forever. So you don't have to worry, oh, I need three cents. I need two more cents of stamps. That's fine. Number three, lunch. Okay, this is not provocative, but I tend to spend a lot of time home alone. And when I'm home alone, I sometimes dwell on thoughts I shouldn't. And going out for lunch is a very good way to break up the day. It's a very good way to see people and get an exchange of ideas. And I like humans, and I get a good exchange of, I don't know, dopamine, oxygen, carbon who knows? That was today's science lesson. Number four, New York taxis. Okay, they always get a bad rap, but lately I found myself to have been rescued from non-showing Ubers or Lyfts by very nice cab drivers. Also, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that these apps, both of those that I just mentioned, leave a lot to be desired lately. You'll see that your driver is two minutes away and then in two minutes, he's two minutes away. And in seven minutes, he's two minutes away, but that's not enough time to cancel without getting charged. It's stressful for me. So I like a yellow cab from time to time. And number five, handkerchiefs. I do prefer to carry a 
clean cotton handkerchief to stuffing my pockets with Kleenex. And I think that a washable hanky is probably preferable to the environment, but who knows? And also, where did these hankies come from that I have? I don't remember buying them. Did my grandma come back from wherever she is and put them in my dresser? I know I bought one in Japan because in Japan, department stores have, get this, a handkerchief department because they love their hankies. If I needed to buy a new handkerchief, I don't know where I would go in America other than a men's store, which have men's size really big and really thick and not beautifully embroidered handkerchiefs. That concludes the historical portion of this podcast. Coming up, the wonderfully observant Jamie Attenberg talks about writing her dog, Sydney and her life in New Orleans. We'll be right back. Jamie Attenberg is in the studio as we speak, and I just said to her, I, it's funny we haven't met before, but she didn't agree with that. But okay, that's it doesn't matter. I was Be in Brooklyn. You were in Brooklyn or in Buffalo That's where I grew up, Buffalo Grove. Illinois. You were in Buffalo Grove, and I was just... Um, I was just at bookstore. I was at the Water Tower Place bookstore in Chicago. Oh, yeah. That's and, great. Yeah. Great mall. Great mall. One of my first, actually, um, that I visited. Not that I did anything or had any connection to. But your new novel, All This Could Be Yours, is fantastic. Thank it you. was such great companionship for me last week. Honestly, now, this is a novel that weaves together the very disparate threads of a dysfunctional family. And I, I almost don't like the term dysfunctional family because it's very easy thing to call any family. It's mm -hmm. like saying I'm depressed when you mean I'm in a bad mood or it's using a term of art that is used carelessly by a lot of people. In this case, the dysfunction is real. People aren't speaking to one another. And this family, for no good reason lives in New Orleans. <laughs> but the good reason is that you relocated yourself from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, home of hipsters, yes, to New Orleans five years ago? For February will be four that I'm there full time. What, what was that about? Tell me. Because <laughs> I find New Orleans a very tricky place. And I met last time I was there a, a lot of people who said, I have no family connections here, no job connections. This place just made me happy. Yeah, it's true. It was the place that made me happy. I lived in New York City for, I, I've been saying for like two weeks that I lived there for 18 years in every single interview. And then it was pointed out to me that it was maybe 16 years instead. Um, so, But I lived in New York City for a really long time. And I grew, grew came into my own as a writer here. Um, and it's, it's a really hard place to be an, a working artist. And I had sort of like arrived at as far as I like I'm like super good with like where my career is at like I just put out a book every two years I'm really productive and I was like I will never get ahead in my life if I stay in New York meaning ever. ahead of the curve financially Finan or financially financially for sure professionally I can do what I, what I do anywhere anywhere so yeah. that was maybe that wasn't my first part of it but it was definitely part of it um, and and then also I had been go I went there I think it's been seven or eight years that I went there every single winter 
winter. And I was always going to different places um, for months at a time to do work and to get out of New York. And that was, um, and looking for the next, I always thought I would never spend the rest of my life in New York. 16 years was quite surprising to me. And so then I finally ended up in New Orleans. I had been there before, but it was just the right time and the right place. And I met a lot of really nice people. And I kept going back there. And I it was my happy place. And then I thought, I can do what I do from anywhere. And I've met, I have a really good team here. I have a really good publisher. And I don't need to be here anymore. And what happens if I go to my happy place and make that my permanent home? And I do not regret it. And having been back in, I mean, I've certainly been back to New York more than once like this past week, I've just been like racing around and I'm like, how do you, once you get, leave New York, it's very hard to step back into it. Like I love it. I thrive off of it. But also like I need, uh, like I did an interview before this and I took a five minute nap in the lobby of, of iHeartRadio. Like I was like, oh, it's so exhausting. It is exhausting. Yeah. It is hard. And it also has changed so much in the last four years since you've been gone. So much. I mean, you drive around the city and you see, I would well, Williamsburg. I put, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bedford Avenue. I was, it's a shopping mall. It's kind of cra- it's really crazy. I mean, all still of New very, York is a shopping mall. It's now. very yeah. It's it's all still like a, like appealing and dazzling in its way, but it's much different, you know. But everyone says that. Like, but every generation says, "Oh, you should have seen New York." 10 years but ago. you were in New York 10 years and ago. I, right. And I'm the thing that generation. Is, yeah, no, but also yeah. I feel like well, for example, yesterday I read that the city ca- uh, city bakery cafe closed. I know. And someone on Facebook said, "Now New York is just more and more like Cleveland." I mean, the fact is, it's the same shops anywhere. There is less of a neighborhood feel anymore. You know, the, the, New York used to be a city of districts and neighborhoods and that fr- had distinct and, and, populations, no longer. And frankly, I bet Cleveland has a real neighborhood feel to it. So yeah. I wouldn't even judge Cleveland on that, you know? Exactly. Exactly right. But going back to New Orleans as a character mm. in your novel, That's All right. This Could Be Yours, number one, the heat and the stickiness and the humidity of of the novel as you describe the city, which you do beautifully, almost made my hair frizz. I mean, it was that vivid. Jamie, it is a wonder to me after reading the novel and having my hair frizz while reading it, that and having been to New Orleans many times, that it's such a winning place. Could you just explain that? Because the last time I was there, it was September. It was so brutally hot that there were outdoor air conditioners at the hotels. <laughs> yeah. There are outdoor conditioners, air conditioners. It's just the same thing as like me saying when I don't when I leave New York and I come back to it, it's hard to walk into it. But when you walk into New Orleans on one of those very hot days, you you don't know how you could possibly survive an entire summer. And I've now done three summers there. And you sort of, I mean, I get into it. I kind of get into it. Also, the heat, the humidity is very good for my hair. So I really, like I've now that I've been out of air, I'm like, oh, where did my hair go? I miss, I miss my New Orleans hair. But um, I, it's, uh, in fact, in the summer, it's, there aren't as many tourists there. And it really starts to become the city that it, it, you know, it's real self. It's real self, and it's really. I find it really interesting and fascinating. It is way. It is way too hot, and there's not much we can 
this is what's going on. You have to just sort of be into it. But I, um, I don't know. I, I like it. I, I get very passionate about it. You also sort of suggest, because the family at the center of this novel, the Tuckmans, or do you pronounce it differently? Tuckmans is right. The Tuckmans sort of respond, or at least Barbara, the matriarch, is very affected by the heat and very affected as she walks. She's a she's one of these um, women who just dreams of being thin, and that's important to her, and she wants to get her steps in. Mm-hmm. And as she's doing her steps and counting her steps and maybe checking her pulse and wearing diamonds on every finger, <laughs> she is somehow, I feel, motivated by the heat, which she doesn't like. She wants to go back to Connecticut, where they're from, and... She's cold in the bones. She's cold she in the bones. She likes it, and she wants to stay cold in the bones. She's not... So New Orleans isn't for her. I mean, listen, it's kind of a trick of it. Like, I am writing about a city that is... Um, has been documented a million times, in especially in film and television, and people have really specific ideas about it. And so the trick of it was, like, invent a character who doesn't like it there. Yeah. So I can sort of show all of these things that are like, like I sent her to a crawfish boil, and she thinks it's the grossest thing she's ever seen, when, of course, crawfish boil is a wonderful, joyful experience where you share food with your community, you know. Right. Um, and, uh, and so that was part of the trick of it was just, like, being able to show things through her eyes with a kind of she's and she's a wry, gimlet-eyed kind of character anyway. But she's definitely the person who just if if you don't like it, if you can't get, I mean nobody likes the heat, right? Really like genuinely likes the heat, but um, she can't really if you can't get past certain things, then you probably shouldn't live there. So she's not she's she's in exile from Connecticut, and she was ambushed. She didn't know she was going to have to live there. Yes, she's right. there against her her will. Each character in the novel is very well-rounded. I understand them. I didn't understand Gary at first, and then I did. Mm. I don't want to give the the story away, but how do you describe, describe it, it in a brief way? My brief way is that it's about a very bad rich man who is bad in all the bad rich man ways and he has a heart attack within the first two pages of the book and I really just was not super interested in him so I put him in a coma right away like I'm interested enough in him that he's a character in the book but he's not I didn't really want to hear from him too much you didn't want to hear from him but yet you learn about him you learn a lot about him because a lot of what is going on in the book has to do with what he did. What I did was I I took away his like um, his agency, his close third person perspective. And I so we don't ever hear his side of things because I feel like all we do is hear about the side of things from this man. So I was like, I'm done with that. I want to, you know, I want to like change the conversation about it. And so I very and I always have strong female protagonists and I'm much more interested in complicated women than I am in these in these complicated men. So he's in the coma. He has various family members. He has a wife, Barbara. He has a daughter, Alex. He has a son, Gary. He has a daughter-in-law, Twyla. And all of them either are going to gather around his bedside or not gather around his bedside. But he's on his deathbed and um, they're coming to terms with who he was and how he impacted 
their life. And that was what I was interested in, is the impact of this kind of man, this toxic male. Um, less interested in what he did, but just sort of who, how that impact rolls out and who and how, how children grow up and how spouses react to it and what kind of damage he does. And, and then ultimately, not that that book offers a solution necessarily, but sort of how do we move on from that? Well, and that was so skillfully done. I just have to tell you. Thank you. Uh, That's nice of you to say. And no, it's it's the ending is actually extremely satisfying. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. At least it is to this reader. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I'll be interested in um, the other readers who discover this wonderful book through the podcast, and they can write in on our website at lisabernbach.com and tell me if they are satisfied by the ending. Also, you very skillfully weave a thread from the beginning with the medical, with the EMT. Yeah, all the way to the end. All the way to the end. That was, and you didn't do it in a way that um, I saw coming. So there's, that was wonderful. There's a lot of long cons in this book. There's a lot of like little voices that pop up and are kind of, and I didn't know, I, I knew a, I knew a lot going in, but I also, when I was writing that first draft, all these little voices popped up and were like, we are going to have to include us too. And I just hmm. listened, I just listened to them and let them and then figure out sometimes, sometimes it's really clear. And sometimes I think, well, maybe I'll figure out what to do with them later. And, and most of them had a reason for being there, fortunately. Jamie, did you have a, a seance at which you gathered this family? Did you? <laughs> how did? How did you plan this novel? Tell me, really, your process. I really, I heard. So the sixth chapter in the book, which is two women, Alex and her sister-in-law Twyla, sitting on the roof of a hotel. Mm-hmm. They, which probably had air conditioning. Which probably had. It was the Roosevelt in my mind. Yes. Um, they um, are sitting around talking about this dying man. I knew right away there was a dying man, and that nobody liked him, right away. And um, and that one person was feeling very strongly about it, and the other person, at least seemingly, was feeling not as strongly about this person dying. And I knew they wanted. They were going to talk about family secrets, and I knew that there was a wife who the daughter wanted to get the the secrets out of. And that's literally that's four characters right there. And that was like that's in like. Two paragraphs, and I was oh, like, wait, well, "Wait, wait, wait, wait!" Yeah, what do you mean? You saw them, or heard them, or knew I, they would be on the roof just, of the Roosevelt Hotel? I just heard. I saw two people on the hotel. No, I don't wait, know. stop! I don't know. Did you? <laughs> did you say to yourself, "Today I'm going to start a new book"? Mm-mm. I was driving, and I heard a voice in my head. I know oh it's so God. weird. It's such a weirdo thing. Whenever no, I talk about it, I love that. That's how it is, and so you I hear. I just hear it, and. I just very recently heard something like another voice for another book that I was like, oh, I probably will write that someday. And how do you c- concretize that? Do you start writing immediately Sometimes, when you hear it? If I'm driving, I will like pull over and like send a little email or something to myself or write in a notebook. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it has to be the right time for me to be writing. Like right now, like when I got that idea the other day, I was. Like, well, that's great, except I'm on book tour, so this ain't getting written. So I just wrote a little note to myself, and I, I th- and I wrote down, I had the title, too. And so I put it in a little sticky note on my computer or whatever, and then I was like, all right, well, we'll just, like, hold off on that. So when you next go back home and yes. when your tour is over, you get a very long tour, I noticed. Yeah. You, um, you can... Well, maybe in, like, a year, because I have another 
I have an essay collection that I'm working on, so that everything's kind of on hold. But it's good to have a book that you can cheat on. One with book another with. book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I just kind of. So here's the thing is like my whole life is really about writing these books. Like I don't teach really that much. And um, and I don't have a, a kid. I have a, just my dog is my child. Um, and um, and I take this job very seriously. And this is what I do. And I get up and I do it five days a week when I'm actually in the writing mode. Mm-hmm. And so when you decide that that's when you decide to open yourself up to that. And you figure out that, like, I'm good at actually being productive. Like, it's act, it's a real skill that I have that I can put out a book every two years. Once you decide that and you give yourself over to it and you trust yourself, then these things show up and, and you know what to do with them when they show up. And you value them when they show up. Well, you know you know which voices to honor and which yes. you can ignore. Yes. Do, do you hear things that you do decide to um, uh, discard? So I have, um, usually what I do at the very beginning of process is I am writing two books at the same time when I'm not sure yet what my next, like this essay collection, I've written a proposal for it. Like I know this is the next thing I'm going to do. But usually what I do, and actually this essay collection was part of me writing it against another book. um, And then one of them gets thrown away. But there's something I'm working out I when I'm doing it and I don't know what it is necessarily but usually I'm it's all part of the process writing two books at the same time is all part of the process and and sometimes I just get like funny titles or concepts and I think that would be funny and then I don't do anything I have like a running list of titles and I never use them and in fact one of my titles which was like the ultimate title which is cheat day Mm -hmm. was going to be great and I for years I was like put it on the back burner and I was like that's my it's like my safety school do you know what I'm saying right and then somebody up and sold a book and now she's like we're like internet friends but I saw the announcement I was like you you how dare you no 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 I was so happy for her because she's like young I call her young me because I'm like she did it she like found the same like there's some sort of like in tune thing going on there she lives in Brooklyn um, and it'll come out I guess in a year or something I'm like I can't wait give it to me I'm going to blow it uh-huh. like it's the most genius book idea ever you know <laughs> but I so sometimes they sit there long enough and they, they go away but I don't know I just I enjoy uh, I just enjoy generating ideas when I interviewed Neil Young once a long time ago his process sounded a little bit like yours he said he heard words he heard lyrics and mm. music in his head but he, differently, he was a little superstitious. He could not write anything down until he heard the whole thing. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and once he once he was so excited, he wrote down, I don't know, the first few bars of a song. And it went away. And it went away. Sure. He just couldn't finish it. And I believe that real artists do contrive. Yeah. You can. Yeah. And I think... Make it show up. I just don't know how to do that, but I, I I'm it's, hoping one day it'll happen to me too. Sometimes when I'm like writing and I'm in a scene and I I close my eyes and I think I put myself in the room like I can see inside the room and that's when I that's like incredible. Wow. It's a really fun experience. That's the other thing about writing is that it, a lot of people have complicated relationships with their writing where they don't they love having written they don't they it's, they don't they, enjoy the they don't enjoy the process whereas i really love the process there's some there's always some bumps along the way but for the most part when i have a good day of writing then i'm the happiest person it's just, it's like the same as like working out for 2 hours or something like that like you just get a rush an incredible rush off of it and i genuinely i just like love feeling playful 
with that. How many hours a day is your is your usual work day? I'm trying to think. I mean, I get up at six usually, um, but not. But part of the process is like I walk my dog for an hour and I read for an hour and then I and then I'll handwrite. I'm usually done by like three in the afternoon, but that also includes like any business that I have to do for for my book, like pu- in terms of publishing, things mm-hmm. like that. But I'm I'm usually, I mean, I feel like I put in like a full day. I, it's an eight-hour day. I mean, not all of it is writing, scribbling, but I sit my butt at the desk and I do the work. And you do it by hand? I do it by hand in the morning and then I type it up in the afternoon. And it's a thousand words a day. Oh, that's so that's my, four pages of TypeScript? Yeah. Pretty much. So I know, I, at this, I don't count the words when I'm handwriting them. Mm-hmm. But I have a general idea at this point, like how much I need to handwrite in order to make it to, I mean, I might handwrite 500 words, but leave enough blank, like, oh, just go long here kind of thing. And then, um, because I just find when you handwrite that you, it doesn't feel have to be perfect. And that's where like experiments happen and I'm much more inventive. Whereas when I type it into the computer, it's, I mean, I can still experiment, but it feels like it has to be perfect. For me, the computer um, doesn't, When I write, and of course I write nonfiction, but when I write, I find that um, the flow can be interrupted by the knowledge, the flickering cursor knowledge that something could be improved right then and there. And the underline. Right. It makes me crazy. And everyone has said to me, you know you could turn the underline off. And I'm like, you're so smart. Congratulations. I can turn the underline off. But psychologically, the underline is still there. Right. Yeah. Right. As a matter of fact, a number of years ago, I bought a very primitive electric typewriter because that was still still enough of a kind of spree with my head that I didn't stop and spell and... and Yeah, and you just kind of went with it. I but, went with it. But anyway, it. generationally now, it's all different. But then I was talking to someone the other day, and they said that... Um, I thought, oh, they're all just, like, composing online. But they were talking about um, tablets where you can handwrite, and then it translates it into... Oh, yeah, I've heard of those. I was like, I guess that's super efficient. I'm, I'm like, it feels like a cheat to me. Like, there's something about the... Well, living with your words. Yeah, and you, moving it and typing it and thinking yeah. about it and, and perfecting it. I think it's all... But whatever. I mean, every, every generation is going to be... A di- little different. Different, yeah. Um, do you make a change between the morning and the afternoon sometimes? Do you tweak in that first type Oh, yeah, version? sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm definitely like... It's, it's almost like it's a draft 1.5 when I'm mm-hmm. done with an entire draft. And how many drafts typically do you do you write? I do, I think I do, what I do is 100 pages, and then I usually go back and look at what I have and do another version of it, and then I send that to my agent. So he's probably getting like a draft three or something like that of the first 100. Mm-hmm. And so, and then I'll do, and then probably what gets to my editor is like a draft four, and then I'll have to do two more drafts after that with her. And then there's the copy edit. So I th- I'm sure by the end it's like seven drafts. But then it all starts to, you know, get muddled together because draft seven is far different than draft four in terms of what I have to do to make it work. Do you find that you love your novel um, that you're working on more than any of the prior ones? Do you, do you um, obviously... And it has to be an emotional experience writing fiction. You are 
nurturing a vision that you have. You're nurturing um, a, maybe a moral that you want to convey or um, righting a wrong yeah. in some way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I loved, I I love this one because I mean, I do love them all. They're, I'm doing something structurally different with all of my books. So each book feels different than the last. So that is like its own kind of challenge. Um, this one I is probably, I mean, all my books are political, but I would say this one is like, has the most authorial voice, like where I'm stepping in and being a, giving like a little bit more commentary than I usually, I, I had to sort of decide that I wanted to do that because mm-hmm. I, in general, just like my characters to speak for themselves and let them do their thing. But and my last book was first person, so I just let her do whatever she wanted to do. But in this instance, I it sort of felt warranted, and or I just had something to say, and I wanted to do it. But I felt weird about it, and then I was like, whatever, it's your book. So, Jamie, this book is just published, and it feels of the moment. It feels like you must have taken the last red mark off <laughs> a week ago. I mean, it does feel in, in the feelings that Alex and, and the two grandchildren have about life under Trump, who you don't mention, but it's all very suggested. I mean, I started in 2017, in the fall of 2017. And then I finished it in um, like the final copy edits in January of this year. And I we sort of went back and forth on when it was going to get published. And I said, I want I really think it should be a fall 2019 book. I didn't think it would be it just made sense for it to be a fall 2019 book in my eyes. Um, ultimately, I don't get to choose those things. My right. publisher gets to choose those things, but right. I made a push for it, and I said, I can get this done in that time. And I just worked really, really hard, and I was really fast, and um, and I just I wanted it. To, so, it, I mean, it's a post-election novel, for right. sure. Like right. it's, um, And so that's why it, it feels that way, because we've almost been trapped also in this insane like timeline <laughs> since 2016 that it sort of can just feel like right now or it could feel like a year. I mean, I, it was really set like last year, but it truly does not feel that different. No, it doesn't at yeah. all. It doesn't at all. And um, when you go on these very exhaustive and exhausting book tours, and I think this would be a good time to describe a book tour. Yeah. Um, there is, of course, by now you have a legion of fans, but at the same time, you could be doing your big book signing the night of the Democratic debate, mm-hmm. or you could be, I once was stuck in a bookstore in Dallas the day of the UT-Oklahoma game where there was no one in the bookstore. Yes. So those those episodes sort of make you humble. Yes. <laughs> and those episodes also, you know, the glamour of the book tour is not so glamorous. No, I agree. Um I mean, the the biggest hindrance for me has uh, for my last tour was one. I was snowstorms everywhere I went, and the book came out in March, and I thought it's gonna be great. March, it's fine. Snowstorms everywhere. Remember uh, spring? We used to have something yeah, called yeah. spring in March. <laughs> it was very. It was like it was kind of a bummer uh, in that way. And then like the flip side of like was I read in Seattle, and they're like it's our first nice day that we've had in so long, and nobody came to that one. So, Aww. but in, on the East Coast, people tend to come because it's I've lived here a long time, and it's you know family comes and friends come and friends who are family that kind of thing um and then also i found like just really weirdly when my last book came out came out all grown up that um it was it came out in 
winter of, you know, spring of 2017. And everyone was so shell-shocked from the election that I, I and I thought, I, I, I mean, I, I didn't know who was going to win, but I definitely was writing from the perspective of, and our next president will be, a few, you know, mm-hmm. and this will be a welcome novel. And then, like, when it came out, I mean, it did totally fine, but it was like, it was just almost so weird because we were like, who is this? It was like about like a strong, um, like, but kind of messed up single woman. And it was like, almost like that's the least of our problems, like right. that no one's taking this single woman seriously when we have so many other things going on. So um, so that that was kind of a tricky, it was a tricky book to put but out. But it's then. not just the, the timing of the book and finding its audience. It's about... The drain of it's really exhausting. Yes, your emotions. Don't you think? And some people at book signings I've had, there's often a very strange person who asks weird questions. Asks weird questions. Almost always a man, and won't leave you when you're trying to leave the bookstore, and or people who pick up your book in full view of you, and then put it back down, and put it back down. Yes, there's so that hurts, (laughs) and then. Then you get preempted on a TV or radio show because of something else going on, or you get only five minutes. You thought you'd have 20. But don't you feel sort of, I feel very zen about it. I mean, it's the beginning of the tour, but I feel a little like, not numb, but just like ready for it because I've been, I've done seven book tours in 13 years. So I'm just like, whatever happens is, I mean, I already have like figured out which events, like I'm like, I don't think anyone's coming to that one. I don't, I had an event in DC this weekend. Um, and I think eight people came. It was like a lunch. It was like a paid luncheon. It was uh-huh, lovely. Uh-huh. But I was like, let's hope this is, there's no only, this is the only time only eight people show yeah, up. Like, yeah. And whereas tonight I know like it will be tons and tons of people in New York City. So um, I'm actually, I look for, I sort of focus on the things that are going to be amazing. My parents are throwing an event for me at their temple in Florida, which will be like hundreds of people. It will be epic and it will please my parents to no end. So I'm, that's near the end of the tour. And then the day after that, I go and I do Judy Bloom's bookstore in Key West. I don't know if you've ever been to that one. No, I didn't know she had she one. She has a bookstore there. I've done it once before and it's wonderful and you get to hang out with Judy and it's like the great, you're like, I am I have arrived. And I have whole, arrived. My yeah. whole life is perfect because I know Judy for just like a second. Yeah. Um. So I, so I look forward to those things and then the other stuff that's in the middle, if it doesn't work out, um, I don't know. Who cares? I guess who cares? Like, I've already... I, I care. I already hurt. I hurt for <laughs> anybody going on a book tour. I do. I don't want to lie, but I just, like, I don't... I don't know. I think it's going to be... I think, I think I it's, like it's going to be... Well, look, yeah. it's a really wonderful book. Um, I guess I've said that about five times already, but I don't feel that way about every novel that I read. Some novels I read and I I feel jealous or angry or peevish about the author, but you've done the work. You've really <laughs> this is a, a a wonderful work that um thank you. that I know you are proud of producing. I love the cover, by the way. So good. Yeah, it's cover really good. is so good. I was like there will be no woman on this cover. Right. Like it's not lady Fiction. Kind of, I mean, it's definitely for women, but I was like, do not put me do in you, the box. Okay, now I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> I'll argue with you about that. Is this lady fiction? It's not lady fiction. Your fans are probably mostly women, but that's this is a muscular book. Yes, I know. So I just I wanted to make sure that it was reaching. We were just talking about this in the car that you sometimes, if you have a lady in the cover, it means m- most men are not going to pick it up, right? Correct. Like that's a signal. So unless she's 
a Vargas girl, right? Maybe, right, right, yeah. or, right. Uh, or yeah, some sort of historical kind of thing, maybe too. Um, but I, um, and I've seen it, and I actually think men should read all of my books, and that they would enjoy and get something out of all of my books. And um, but with this one, I definitely insisted. I was like, I want everyone to read this book. I want to make sure. And so this is really, it is like a very not necessarily masculine, but it is. It's a substantial cover. It's a, it definitely says something. It definitely says. Um, don't be afraid, men. It says, <laughs> yes, it says, if you're strong enough, right, you can open this. Yes, yes, right. It oh, does. That's good. And I'm going to take you with me wherever I go. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and also it says, who wears this color orange? Maybe people in jail. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think so. Uh, oh, yeah, because it's orange is the new black color. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you've, got all, you've got a lot of bases covered here. I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I just think that sometimes you're on a book tour. Well, you never start one with low hopes. Mm-hmm. You start it with high hopes. And then I would find my first book tour was in 1980 when it was all different. I'm sure. And you were in high school in Buffalo City <laughs> and uh, Buffalo Grove, Illinois. Yeah. yeah. And um, I, I have to say... I wanted, I you know, you want people to like you. Yes, and and I didn't, I didn't have an escort. My mm. publisher didn't do that, and I didn't know how to drive because I was a native of Manhattan who whose family didn't own a car, so it was really hard to get around. Yes. Um, and also, I'm just picturing you on a street corner with your suitcase, like with the waving. Full, wait, hold on. That suitcase wasn't on wheels in 1980 either. Yeah. Oh. As I was trying to hail a cab and didn't know if the radio station was closer to the airport no, or what. Young Lisa. I know. Out in the woods. Out by herself <laughs> in a in a land of predators and people wearing <laughs> nylon. It wasn't good. But you know what? Um. We get through it. We get through it. I my first book tour. All my first book tours were like me in a car driving cross country by myself. Like I was such a road warrior. My dad was a traveling salesman, so I inherited like that. Get out there. And my parents also owned a sewing store, so I'm a small. I consider myself a small business operator myself. So, <laughs> so wait, did so you drove because yeah. anybody growing up in America in uh, most places would drive and you did you sew also no that was my one stupid punk rock rebellion i was like i'm not gonna learn how to sew and now i'm like oh, i wish i knew how to sew well, i mean i could like sew a you could learn now i could sew now it's it's too late i already don't know everything that i like all my skills and now i mean not that i, I you know what you are you're like athena you <laughs> you came out of your parents forehead fully formed as you know some people do and you're and and now you write a book every two years and go on a book tour every two years. Yes, I'm a machine. A machine. You're a machine. No, but I. Well, I do you have, have a time wonder for fun? No, but I. I moved. I to return to the beginning of the conversation. And then I moved to New Orleans. So like I was a machine. But you're still a machine. I, it's true. But I'm a much happier machine because I well, was. Because your hair is better. My hair is better. That and always I, helps. And I like have a backyard, and it's so silly. But like my dog you know, sits in the backyard and my desk looks out of the backyard and I see my little happy dog in the sunshine and it makes me really happy. Okay. Yeah, so. All kudos to you, <laughs> my new friend. <laughs> I, I I think it sounds like a, a dream life, honestly. But, but 
Do everyone you have time has for their, fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because it's. I live in like one of the most fun places in the so world. So do you drink heavily? Um, no, I don't drink heavily. Do you drink? But I do drink. But I just took two months off this summer. From of drinking. drinking, and how how was that? Um, it was really good. You can drink your way. You can in New Orleans. It's like you either drink your way through the summer, or you go into hibernation. And I went into hibernation and worked on my next book proposal because I knew I wasn't going to be able to do anything this fall. So wait, so for fun, you didn't drink. <laughs> okay, that's it. We're going to your five things. <laughs> I can't relate now. <laughs> no, I love drinking. No, I love okay. drinking. Don't get me wrong. But do you have some vices or just some I guilty lots pleasures? I used to, listen, I lived in New York City in Brooklyn and like moved to New York in 98. And I, so I was in my late 20s in 98. And I had a very good time for a long time. And then I stopped doing a lot of the things that I used to do. Gotcha. And, um, and now I just drink. And even still, I love, love to drink. Um, but I am I, not, I am not saying you have to drink but a, I a lot of fine people don't drink but I'm just don't like I'm just like I'm just approaching like fully approaching middle age and I just like I like getting up and I like sleeping through the night and if I drink I don't get to sleep through the night no it's sensible so but I still I love a martini okay okay yeah. that's all I needed okay <laughs> Jamie Attenberg your five things yeah. that get you through your life, your week, your day, however you want to. Okay. Okay. Number one. So obvious. Do so obvious. Dog parks. But I do like to take my dog to a dog park. But then beyond that, because I'm not doing as much anymore, but when I used to drive back and forth from New York or drive anywhere out of out of the city, it's fun to stop in dog parks in, in other people's communities. Because <laughs> they then you get to chat with people. In other places, and and you get to look at cute dogs wherever you go, and I don't know, it's just a good way to get out of the house too. My dog doesn't even really like dog parks that much. It's more, but you for, do. It's more for me. It's more for he you. He would just be happy staying at home and hanging out with me. What's his name? Sydney. Sydney. Sid that's vicious. a good. That's yeah. yeah. And what breed is he? He's a puggle. He's named after well, dead dead grandfather. No, actually, it's two. He's Sydney Morris, so it's both the dead grandfathers, Jewish grandfathers. The dead grandfathers. Sidney Morris Attenberg, yeah. Ah, that's so cute. <laughs> Number two. I'm trying to get talk about my dog in every interview I do. Um, my local radio station um, for the blind, which I love. Wait, I, hold it. Yeah. Only blind people are supposed to listen to it? No, it's uh, no, it's but it's people read. I don't like it because they don't have it in New York, but it's people who read. Like oh stories, stories. For the blind. Like they read, yeah. Like the mo- it's but like they also mo- read the newspaper. They do. They read the newspaper, and the, that radio station exists. I mean, it's for people. It's for the blind to hear people read these stories to them that they can't read themselves, they can't read, or they could, but or it's they different. Could. Yeah. And so I, I don't know how many actually. Uh, I'm fascinated with these. I know I keep wanting to write a letter of recommendation for it because I love it so much. And I, lo- I'm, I get to do interviews. I'm going to do an interview for like there next week. And you're I'm probably so more excited about that one. Than, I'm very. Excited. Let's say this one. Well, Just- I learn so much. I learn because um, they do a lot of stuff about New Orleans and Louisiana that I would mm-hmm. never have heard of. Like they just read local articles and and from local texts and stuff like that. And so I learned about. Um, Nutria, which is, there's an appearance of it in the book. There is an appearance. It's like a local, I mean, I've seen them before. It's a rodent, but it's like big. It's like a hamster rodent rat thing, and it's destroying like the, you know, all the um, wildlife and all this kind of stuff in in Louisiana. And so I I remember like one day just pulling over to the side of the road and listening to this random person read about Nutria, and I was like, that's going in the book. No, it's (laughs) WRBH, your local 
radio station, yes. it, does it broadcast all 24 hours? I think you can listen to it. Yeah, and I think you can listen to it I'm, online. I'm going to say online. I hope we got those call letters right. I think we did. Okay. Um, but I'm anyway, you, double check. You could just Google Radio Station for the Blind New Orleans and find it. Yeah. It's great. It's great. Do you think other cities have that? I'm sure some do, but they might have they might not have a dedicated station. They might have like a dedicated hour, hour or something yeah. like that, but yeah. this it's very it's very cool. Yeah. So, and That's, it's just fun to listen to it when you're driving. And the accent so, must be good. It's very good. Yeah. It's on my five things. Right. Okay, number three. I um, I have the Alexandria, uh, the AOC Red, as I call it, the Stila Base, I may be pronouncing Beso? it. Beso. Um, which is just the red lipstick that she wore when she first, was, everyone was paying attention right. to her. And, like, I, uh, I ordered it because, like, every other fool went to. Stop it. Yeah, but I love it. I love it, but it's a lot. It is a lot of lipstick. Because it's just a sticky, sticky red on your lips, and you can't get it off ever, except one little tiny spot that haunts you for the rest of the day. <laughs> and um, and I sometimes wear it at home when I'm just like at home by myself, and I'm like, I'm just gonna look glamorous for myself. So I like that one. I like that. Now wait, we have to stop here. The the red lipstick. Yeah. There's something that's going on in this world right now that I object to. Okay. I wore a red lip. I wore a nude lip. Have you heard people say things like that? What? I Red wore a lip. Oh. I wore a bold lip. I wore a a nude lip. I don't think we're saying it down in New Orleans. Oh. Maybe they're saying it Maybe in I'll the fashion move magazines. Maybe I'll move. It Yes, it offends you. It. I don't like it. A okay. bold lip. A eh, statement I might say necklace. It. I might like type it, but I wouldn't say it out loud. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Next. Um, Number four. Crystal hot sauce. That's a brand of hot sauce in Louisiana. In Louisiana, um, that I recommend, and it's—I um, mean, I've just become more invested in hot sauces in general. Well, as as there. you must. So it's just yeah. So I have a friend named Peggy who lives in New York, who's from New Orleans, and she has a cabinet built in her kitchen for her collection of hot sauces of miniature hot sauces. Mm. She must have hundreds of them. They're, and their bottles are really cute. They are. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's good. It's gratifying. It's good. Okay. And number five, a weed whacker. I get it. I mean, I love it. It's like such a great break from, it's Writing. not like doing laundry. It's not like doing dishes. It's go. It's getting you outside of the house. I guess go and do it for 10 minutes. I think about whatever I need to think about. Does Sid come with you? Sid, yeah, he's sitting out in the backyard with yeah, me. Yeah, he's sitting out there he sort while of, you whack. He likes it. He prefers it if I'm out there with him, hanging out with him, and he gets excited like for, to have me join him. In his, he considers the backyard his room. Right. So, well, yeah. So do you. Yeah, but I never had, I have not had a weed whacker ever in my entire life. I've never owned a weed whacker. Most people in Brooklyn don't have weed whackers, But even I in think. the Midwest, we like just oh. mowed our lawns, I think. Oh. So this is my first time, and it's I don't have a big yard. I have a small yard. So it's just instead of getting a lawnmower, you just get the weed whacker. But it's very – I enjoy it very much. Yeah. it's it's I like it when I feel a little rattled afterwards. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> okay, last thing. Mufalada, po' boy. Yes. Crawfish boil. What's what's your favorite New Orleans food thing? And I'm asking you this really for Jimmy, our engineer, who is – an aficionado of New Orleans food or food in general of food. So I okay. I like a um, my go to would be a fried oyster or po' boy. Um, I love um, 
it's not the same experience, but a barbecue shrimp po'boy is actually more like a bunch of, like the oyster po'boy you can pick up and put in your mouth and eat it. But the bar- the barbecue shrimp po'boy tends to be served like on a platter and it's like just like this garlicky, buttery sauce. And then you kind of dip the bread in the sauce and it's like the greatest thing you've ever had in your entire life. But I can only eat like once or twice a year this thing but I do really love it um, and, and do you put crystal hot sauce on it you put crystal hot sauce on it um, I would um, I would say a good raw dozen gulf oysters is going to make you pretty happy it's something that I recommend when I have people flying in I try to take them to a meat because oysters are good full of zinc so it's good after a flight <laughs> I mean I could talk like about this forever but I would say fried oyster po' boy barbecue shrimp Po' boy oysters. On that note, I want to thank you (laughs) and hope I'll see you in two years when you're on your next tour. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Jamie Attenberg, author of All This Could Be Yours, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can follow Jamie on her website at jamieattenberg.com or on Twitter at Jamie Attenberg. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, and iHeartRadio, or wherever else you might find your podcasts. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, where you'll find links and photos relating to everything in the program. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Espresso Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, Sam Haft. Until next week, stay dry and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. 